The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. So good morning, everyone. Welcome. This um, workshop is called Yours They Were, um, The Covenant of Redemption and Wayward Children. And my name is Anne Marie Goudsward, is how you say it. Um, if you want to remember it, just think of God's word. <laughs> um, and we're just going to get started here in a moment. But I, I do want a, a little clarification on who the audience is today. Um, how many of you have a prodigal in your immediate family? Oh, that's what I was afraid of. <laughs> um, how many of you are counseling a prodigal? Yeah, rather sad. Um, and I'm, I'm praying for you. I've been praying for you since I started this talk, and I had a feeling that the audience would be made up of hurting um, mothers, mostly. So welcome, and I hope this is helpful to you, both for your own sake and for your counseling. Um, I'm going to get started by praying. Uh, but then I'm just going to tell you a little bit of my story. And I do have permission from my daughters to tell you this story. So I just wanted to clear the air. I'm not telling you something that they are going to hear this recording on the website and go, <clears throat> Mom. <laughs> uh, they did give me permission. But anyway, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, you have given us so much and such a wealth of um, yourself and your word you've given us your son, we are very grateful. And even though life here in this world is incredibly difficult, and particularly in relationship with our loved ones and our children, our families, our parents, our husbands, um, we know that you can be trusted. We know that we can come to you. And that's what we're doing here today, Lord. We're coming to you to hear from your word and from the things that you teach us in your word how to better respond to the journey that you have us on. And this is a journey, Lord. Um, I pray for each woman here on that journey and that you meet them today, wherever they are, and that your words be what they remember and that my words be God glorifying and honoring to your name. In your name we pray, amen. So I'm sure like you, I was not prepared for a prodigal. Our children all grew up in a home where God was honored. We attended church. We were fully involved in our church plant. If the doors were open, we were there. The pastor always said that. If we're having something, I know that you and your husband will be here. Uh, we raised them with a Christian worldview. We attended church, as I said, regularly. Um, we belonged as members. We were under their authority. Uh, we prayed for our family regularly. We taught our children the faith while we were waking, walking, writing it on the doorsteps, hung the pictures on the wall. And we limited many of their secular influences. We really did kind of shield our children from bad movies, uh, neighbor friends that we didn't know their parents, just you know, all the things that you would think of. And I'm sure many of you have the same story. And while I would never say that our life was perfect, I did believe that our children were just going to continue on that path. I thought that they would continue walking with the Lord and honoring him, um, whatever they chose to do in their lives. So my daughter's journey off that path took me completely off guard. Um, it happened when I was at a high school football game I ran into the mom of one of my daughter's friends, and our girls had spent the night at her house the weekend before, uh, which was a homecoming game, and I just wanted to say thank you to her again for hosting the kids. So I did, and then she just looked at me with kind of a funny look on her face, and she said, oh, okay, yeah, no problem, and then she walked away and we went our separate ways. A little while later, she came back up to me and she said, I just need to tell you something. The girls didn't spend the night at our house. They spent the night at the neighbor boy's house with the rest of the guys. I just thought you should know. And I could just feel this golf ball in my throat as I responded and said, well, thank you for telling me. 
Now, of course, having said what I said about how our family was raised, I, all of the necessary sanctions were taken with my daughter, grounded for life, um, <laughs> no parole. Um, but no, we did, we, we took away privileges. They were no longer to, uh, able to date, which they weren't able to date in the first place. They were only allowed to go out with groups of friends. But that was taken away. And then we also made sure that they weren't going to be friends with those friends anymore, um, which happened to be the football team. Um, but then also thought that we, um, if we kind of went back to social with the family. So in other words, the kids could have their friends come to our house or come to our dinners. That would take care of it. So we really went into this naive and thought, case closed, problem solved, right? Wrong. <laughs> um, the next thing that happened kind of blew up my world. My other daughter, who I think you may recognize, she's the one in the family that helps me understand everything that's going on with all of her siblings. Um, I won't use any other names, but she helped me understand that uh, my daughter, the one from before, had purchased a um, pregnancy kit. She thought she was pregnant. Now they were 14, and my girls are twins, and uh, I was 39, <laughs> and I'm just like, I just put away the diaper pail. <laughs> I am not ready for grandchildren. And it really, really, really rocked my world. I cried out to the Lord. I'm like, how can this be happening in our world? I did everything right. Have you ever said that? Um, I did everything I thought the Lord told me to do. I mean, we subscribed to Focus on the Family. Um, we watched Veggie Tales. We listened to Adventures in Odyssey on the way out of our cross-country camping trip and on the way back. <laughs> I thought we did what we were supposed to do. The girls had promise rings. You know, they had the date with their father and they got their promise ring. Actually, this was the big one. I homeschooled. <laughs> How could this happen? But that moment is what I remember as the moment when I met the God of the Bible. I'm not sure I knew him for sure before that. But what it introduced me to was a God who does, in fact, keep his promises. But he has never, ever promised me that my works would equal my salvation nor that my works would equal my children's salvation, or anyone's salvation for that matter. Works don't equal salvation. In Dave Harvey's book, Letting Go, he writes almost an answer to that cry, although I didn't read it then, I'm reading it now. He says, God uses prodigals to return us to the very lesson we learned at conversion. Change comes from God alone. Our salvation was not of us. Our ongoing sanctification is not ultimately by us. And our final security is not through us. Oftentimes, when we consider the salvation of our children, we really do think we have control, don't we? We place all of our hope on our performance as parents or their response to that competency. Dave Harvey, again, he calls this deterministic obedience, or basically a form of legalism. Of course we believe that salvation comes from the Lord. Of course we believe that. But in practice, it looks a little different in our families. We take on that burden of making sure that our children are trained well enough to have faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, and a desire for a new holiness. I know you can imagine the immense guilt that comes when your child then does not follow the Lord or turns away. Our grief, it, it wavers. It goes between that feeling of failing miserably or the fear that we have of their eternal damnation that's possible. Um, both of these beliefs, they bring about fear, they bring about pain, and they bring about a great regret. One of the books, and I know this is probably outdated, but this has been a while now, and this is one of the books that I was using in that time. I, I recommend it to you. It, 
um, has some stories in it from Ruth Bell Graham and her daughter, actually, about their prodigals. And it's not as much stories as it is poetry, um, Bible verses that helped them at that time. So it's, it's just kind of a, I, I don't want to say guide, but something to lean on if you're going through this struggle. But listen to one of the poem prayers that she wrote with this in mind about these beliefs. It's called, They Felt Good Eyes Upon Them. They felt good eyes upon them and shrank within, undone. Good parents had good children and they a wandering one. The good folk never meant to act smug or condemn, but having prodigals just wasn't done with them. Remind them gently, Lord, how you have trouble with your children too. Our solution, of course, is remind ourselves of those promises of God and that he is the rock of our salvation. And his children do not always respond perfectly to him either. We also pray, I know you are women who are praying fervently. And we have that benefit, that incredible opportunity to bring our requests to the Lord and have him bring those to the Father. And we can live out our own salvation in front of our, our wayward loved ones so that they can see it. And that includes talking about the Lord and how we love and serve him and also loving our families well with, with Christ's love for them. And these are all true and necessary means of grace that the Lord uses towards our children's salvation. But I want you to think just a little bit differently today. I want you to think about how happy you could actually be if we were to turn our eyes toward, away from ourselves and away from our children, but toward the faithful parties who actually perform their part to ensure that those who belong to the Father will never be lost. So we're gonna try and do that today. We're gonna to turn our eyes toward these faithful parties by observing God's covenants um, and his covenantal relationships. So first, I'm gonna give kind of a flyover, and I mean serious flyover of <clears throat> the idea of covenants in the Bible. And then I'm going to try and explain to you the covenant of redemption if you have not heard that before. Um, and again, that's another flyover. And then third, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and answer the question, so what? How does this help me? What does this doctrine mean in my life? So let's just start with the biblical insight concerning covenants. And I always say this when I'm speaking, I'm very academic. I tried to make it as simple as possible, but I do start out with the more technical and then move to the more practical. So if you want to check out right about now and just kind of think about what's for lunch, this would be the time to do it, and then check back in for the practical. It should be better, okay? Um, but if you want to take notes on this part, uh, some of the outline will guide you along on that. But anyway, if you've not heard of the word, I mean, I know you've heard the word covenant, but just let's look a little deeper. If you haven't heard it before, it describes God's relationship with his people. God establishes covenant with his people. Covenants, they contain both blessing and curse. So for instance, in the covenant with Abraham, we see a promise that God would establish his people, that's the blessing, but then we also see that that promise brings judgment, which is the curse for those who disobey God's command. So it comes with blessing and cursing. In a covenant-making ceremony, the Hebrew word is um, karet, or, and it means cutting off. Genesis 15, seven through 17, tells us that God cut apart a heifer and passed through the middle, thereby making a promise to Abraham that what he said he would do, he would do. So there, oh, another reason, another way to think about covenant is just as being set apart. So cut off, set apart, called to God's own. Then there are several things to note regarding covenants, but we're just going to focus on a few. We're going to focus on covenant as a biblical idea. Covenants begin with 
and end with God, and then back to covenants containing blessing and curse, or another way of saying it, covenantal promises and covenantal responsibilities. And that's of all the parties involved, for God and for us. So, for instance, focusing specifically on these promises and responsibilities, I'm going to read from Jeremiah that the covenant that God had with Israel. And just one passage, Jeremiah 31, 33. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So these are God's promises in this verse, that he will be their God, and they will be his people. God's responsibility in this verse is he will put his law in them, he will write it on their hearts. The people, for their part of the covenant, it can be seen in the relationship established by God through his servant Moses in Exodus. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to read uh, from Exodus 19, 3 through 8, and then we'll break that one down. It says, While Moses went up to God, um, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words, saying that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So in these verses, these are the people's promises. Last last verse we looked at God's promises, but these are the people's promises. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then these are the people's responsibilities to obey God's voice and keep his commandments. Now, there's one more thing I think it's important to highlight before we move on and discuss specifically the covenant of redemption. And that is that God makes covenants with men, but that does not guarantee their salvation. Okay? To have an, a place in the covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, and David does not mean that one is in fact saved, because if it did, then we would have to ask about Abraham's son, Ishmael. Abraham was in the covenant. What happened to Ishmael? Membership in the covenant does, of course, bring some blessings to the person in it. A covenant member is vastly more privi- privileged in position than that of an unbeliever, if only because membership in the covenant brings exposure to the means of grace. Okay? So just this small section, our main takeaways are covenants a biblical idea, covenants begin and end with God, and covenants contain both promise and responsibility on the part of, the, on the part of the, those that are involved. Um, Now, there are several ideas of how many covenants there are in Scripture. We're not going to get into that today. Anywhere from three to seven is what I've read and heard of. But the covenant of redemption is the first covenant, and I would like to just focus in on that one for the sake of our talk um, and for the sake of this topic. So the covenant of redemption is also known as the intra-Trinitarian covenant. It is a covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. Burkhoff, in his commentary, he'll define it this way. He says, the covenant of redemption is the agreement between the Father who gives the Son as head and redeemer of all, the elect, and the Son voluntarily takes the place of those whom the Father has given him. 
So the father, having foreseen the fall before the creation of the world, entered into a covenant with the son and promises to give him all of the elect. And the son says, I will take their place. So again, we see that covenant promise, covenant responsibilities. However, the thing to note with this covenant in particular is that it happens within the Trinity. Listen to how Ligon Duncan articulates the covenant of redemption. We find that it is an eternal covenant, a covenant which is prior to time, in which the Son undertakes to be our surety and our mediator, and the Father undertakes to give to the Son all the elect because of the Son's perfect obedience. In the covenant of redemption, the Son buys you by right. The covenant of redemption tells you that when Christ dies for you, it makes your salvation absolutely sure. Why? Because the Father has promised the Son, if you will take that man's place, I will give him to you. Keep that one in mind. If you will take that man's place, I will give them to you. The whole point is that the Father has promised the Son in the covenant. So you're probably thinking that's a really good idea, and a lot of theologians think it, but how do you know it's true? So let's look at some scripture and find out where it is in scripture. And this is not extensive at all. It's just a small sampling. So the first one um, that we're going to look at is Psalm 2, 7 and 8. And again, I'll just read it to you, but if you want to look these up, that's fine. This is the promise that God makes to the Son in scripture. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, this psalm, of course, is in the Old Testament, but it is a messianic psalm. The New Testament authors actually cite it in Acts 13.33, Hebrews 1.5, and Hebrews 5.5, and tell us that it is, in fact, in reference to Christ. But what exactly is the psalmist telling us? Well, he's saying that Christ the Son has ascended to the throne. I have begotten you. That's not I have birthed you, but I have established you. I have established your priesthood. It says he has been appointed the monarch and he rules over his inheritance. I, I will make the ends of the earth your possession. And it's telling us that he's taking the role of the mediator and the head. I will make the nations your heritage. In our second passage, Isaiah 53, 12, the, the, have you heard of John Flavel, Puritan John Flavel? He tells us in that passage that we'll see Christ's work and Christ's reward. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And I want to take one more step a little bit more into this covenant, this doctrine, and look a little, closely, little more closely at God's, Christ's work and Christ's reward. Okay, you with me? There's a hula hoop under here if you're not. You could, you know, wake up a little and then we'll move on. You're good? Okay. I'm not doing the hula hoop. All right, Christ's work first and then Christ's reward. So of course, and I know you all know this, this was a very, very hard work. Flavel writes that it would have broken the backs of all the angels in heaven and all the men on earth had they tried to accomplish it themselves. The second thing to note is that the specific undertakings that actually made this work hard. He was poured out, his, he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for transgressors. We also see how difficult Christ's work was in Isaiah 50, 5 through 7. 
The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Christ obeyed the Father. He suffered and he did not rebel. He did not turn his back. He gave his back to those who would strike it. He gave his cheek to those who would pull his beard. He did not hide from the disgrace or the spitting, and he set his face like a flint. Easton's Bible dictionary tells us that means he would be firm and resolute amidst all contempt and all scorn which he would meet, that he had made up his mind to endure it and would not shrink from any kind or any degree of suffering which would be necessary to accomplish that great work in which he was engaged. Nothing could turn him from it. The third thing to note that although this was a very hard work, that he shed his blood, is that he delighted to do it. Psalm 40, 7 through 10. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O oh Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. This was indeed a very hard work. I want you to feel the pressure of that hard work. And it is not one that we could have accomplished, but it is not one that our prodigals can accomplish either. Okay, now we're gonna look at Christ's reward. Isaiah 53, 12 says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. <clears throat> Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So this passage starts with the word, therefore. The prophet is using this word in reference to the following clause containing information regarding what Christ accomplished. The word in the Hebrew indicates, it denotes result. It does that in English as well. But this particle begins the sentence. So note that it indicates God's promise in response to the work that the Son completes. Therefore, I will divide him a portion because he poured out his soul, okay? I took out some words there, but I want you to see those two clauses together. The father promises the son, if you'll take the sins of the men and redeem them through his blood and sacrifice, God will give him the elect. It's also significant to note that the elect don't just simply refer to the people of Israel. Step back to Isaiah 49 for a minute, verses one through six. Let me read those for you. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named, be, named me by name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of its hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of, my, of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So Flavel, paraphrasing Christ in this passage, writes, this is but a small reward for so great a sacrifice as I must undergo. My blood must be much more worth than this comes to. 
and will be sufficient to redeem all of the elect dispersed among the isles of the Gentiles as well as the lost sheep of Israel. So all of the nations. God makes all of the nations his reward that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. These are the people that John refers to in Revelation as written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I have one more resource that I'd like to share with you um, on covenants. This is newly released. It's by a friend who goes to our church in South Carolina. Her name is Sarah Ivel. She writes mostly Bible studies, but her focuses tend to be on covenants. And she's very accessible. She's easy to read if you'd like to learn more about covenants. She is Presbyterian, I will tell you that. Um, but let me just read the paragraph that she wrote about covenant of redemption. In order to understand the overarching story of scripture, we need to recognize that God initiated different covenants in the history of redemption. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. She's on the three covenants. Ephesians 1.4 teaches us that God, that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Theologians refer, refer to this as the covenant of, re, of redemption. The Father has purposed our redemption, the Son has accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. So thus we have the covenant of redemption. We've looked at the responsible parties in the covenant specifically, and we'll go into that a little bit further in a second here. We've seen the immense work that it took. We see the reward and who it's given to. God gives it to the son. Um, we've seen that it's a relationship. Let's now look at those participants. And you know who they are, but let me just go ahead and tell you a little more. Um, it's been apparent in everything that I've said so far the only people that we're talking about in this covenant are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is the creditor, and actually Sarah says this better than I will, but the Father is the creditor to whom something was owed. The Son is the surety, the person who takes the responsibility of that debt, and then the Holy Spirit applies it. Flavel, again, writes, the Father stands upon satisfaction. The Son engages to give it. Christ is the natural son of God and therefore fittest to make us the adopted sons of God. Christ also is the middle person of the Trinity, therefore, hmm, fittest, it says it again, to be the mediator and middle person between us and God. The Spirit has another office assigned to him, even to apply as Christ's vice regent. So we see these three persons of the Trinity affecting salvation and we see it before the world was created. So what is significant to note here in the covenant of redemption is who is not named in this covenant? Your loved one. You aren't. Do we have a role to play? Of course we do. However, the assurance of our salvation is not found in us. It is found in the Trinity that accomplished what it set out to do. Lastly and briefly, what is the um, covenant timing? Again, you've heard it. And again, I'll read Flavel. I have encouraged you to love Puritans in the few minutes that I've been speaking, right? Okay. It bears date from eternity. They just say it better than I do, that's all. Before this world was made, then were his delights in us, while as yet we had no existence, but only in the infinite mind and purpose of God who has decreed this for us in Christ Jesus. Paul says it in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then also the author of Hebrews in 4, 3, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Okay? So there's our flyover. You still with me? Okay, now we'll go practical. And if you don't like this part, I'm sorry. Can't do anything about it. <clears throat> anyway, so remember I told you to hang on what Ligon Duncan said in the beginning. I'm going to read that little section again. He said, <clears throat> excuse me, the covenant of redemption tells you that when Christ dies for you, it makes your salvation absolutely certain. 
Why? Because the father promised the son, if you will take that man's place, I will give him to you. I want to remind you again that this is the condition for your loved one's salvation as well. It is not your loved one's behavior. It's Christ. And as we've seen in Christ's covenant, Christ's covenant with, that's the name of my church, that's why I tripped, um, with God in his works. It is not your loved one's decision. And I know that's a popular thinking. And even, you know, Billy Graham's magazine, Decision, and what he did at his, um, his rallies, make a decision. But he even wouldn't say it wasn't about the decision. It was about the decision that was already made. And it isn't your loved one's reward for a well-lived life. The condition required for your loved one's salvation is, Ligon Duncan's comment, if the son will take man's place. And we know the answer to that. He did. It's finished. Sit with me just for a moment and let me read Christ's prayer from John 17 to you, for you, for you and your loved ones. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you, give, you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. Not one has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. These are the words of consolation that give us assurance for faith, our faith and our loved one's faith. This is the prayer that Christ continues to pray over you and your loved ones. He is sitting at the throne of grace, whispering these words in the ear of the Father as we speak. I'm trying to decide if I should read another Flavel quote. Do you have room for another one? <laughs> he says, happy were it if puzzled and perplexed Christians would turn their eyes from the de defects that are in theirs or their loved one's obedience to the fullness and completeness of Christ's obedience and see themselves and those they love complete in him when most lame and most effective in themselves. Does the covenant of redemption mean that there's nothing you can do for the sake of your loved one's salvation? Of course it does not. Does it mean that there's nothing you can do in evangelizing? It does not mean that either. We don't know who God's elect are. We don't have physical evidence. Spurgeon says, have you marked them all on the back that I may know them? It doesn't say elect down your back. So in the time that we have here, we have this opportunity to share the gospel. Of course we do. We pray, and again, I know you are praying women. We preach the gospel, and I know you've done that as well. And we live it out in our lives, in the world, so that our loved ones can see our walk with the Lord and see what kind of Lord we believe in. And then we pray again, and we pray again. I am not telling you anything new. I know this is what you're doing. You've been praying, and you've been sharing, and you've been living out the gospel in front of your loved ones. So what I'd like to do while we close this up is to tell you some things that you don't have to do. I want to take some pressure off of you. The first thing is, and this is the most obvious from what we just studied, is that you do not have to worry that your loved one might die before they come to know the Lord. 
We've already seen that the decision is made. It is finished. You can rest assured that if this one is elect, that Christ purchased, they will share eternity with you. You can rest your anxious, weary soul. Second of all, you don't need to live under the pressure of saying the right thing, sharing the right thing, or making sure that you present the gospel every time you're with them. Sometimes you can just spend time enjoying their presence, living in the moment, getting to know them, talking about what they're worried about, thinking about. In fact, your peace of mind in those situations is speaking the gospel. You are showing that you are peacefully living in front of the, the Lord that you love, trusting that person, trusting situations to him to take care of, and knowing fully that you have no control and don't need to take care of it yourself. Third, you don't need to respond negatively to every one of your wayward soul's defects. As parents, the flaws that we see in our children, they, they seemingly etch failure in our skin. However, we, just the same as they, can only claim Christ's perfect work, not our own. And I emphasize this section in the talk, not because you haven't heard that before or that you needed to learn it, but I wanted to emphasize how impossible it was for you to even think about accomplishing, let alone the loved one that you're caring about today. We don't achieve perfection, and neither do they. This reminder of Christ's perfect work from the good news of the gospel should give us an amazing amount of patience and grace whenever we discover yet another frailty in our waywards fight against sin. It doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye or prevent inevitable consequences. Please don't hear me say that. It simply means that we're going to keep our hearts open and ready to, as Dave Harvey says, run down the road with open arms to receive our prodigals when they return. We don't shut our hearts to bury pain. I think I have something else that I wanted to share with you. Ruth Bell Graham also had in this book a little chart of the possible and the impossible. Sorry. What she suggests is our responsibility versus what God's responsibility is. And you can see there's two, two sides to the, the coin. So I'll read what my part, your part is. First, let me read the paragraph before. She says, we mothers must take care of the possible and trust God for the impossible. We are to love, affirm, encourage, teach, listen, and care for the physical needs of the family. What we cannot do is convict of sin, create hunger and thirst after God, or convert. These are miracles, and miracles are not in our department. So my part, the possible, love expressed. Pray intelligently, logically, urgently, without ceasing, in faith. Enjoy being a mother, if this is your child. Provide a warm and happy home. Minister to their physical and emotional needs as you are able. God's part, the impossible. Conviction of sin, creating a hunger and thirst for righteousness, conversion, bringing to the place of total commitment, showing us ourselves as we really are without ever discouraging us, and continually filling us with his Holy Spirit for our sanctification and his service. Thankfully, uh, my daughter's journey did not end in an unwed pregnancy, but for years I can remember silently singing these words from Fernando Ortega's song, Anita's song. He says, she's praying again her daughter will land with both feet on the ground. Nobody knows which way she'll go or if she'll ever come around. Maybe this time she'll finally find the pieces that have come apart and there'll be no more breaking, no more breaking either heart.
Slowly, each of my children began walking, sometimes limping, limping on a path towards following the ways of the Lord. But I have heard your stories, and there are no guarantees that that will continue. So I pray Jesus' prayer, John 17, for us all. And I would commend that to you as well. But I pray with confidence that whether all my children or my grandchildren land with both feet on the ground is not a question in the throne room. The Father has promised, the Son has fulfilled, and the Spirit is applying. Ruth um, took a prayer written by Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and she adjusted it slightly for a mother's prayer, and it's basically John 17. Um, I'm going to close with this prayer, but we're not actually going to close because I'm going to go over the word cloud study cards in reference to the talk that I just gave, but let me just close this section right now reading this prayer, okay? Pray with me. Jesus, good shepherd, they are not mine, but yours, for I am not mine, but yours. I am yours, Lord, and they are yours. Because by your wisdom, you have created both them and me, and by your death, you have redeemed us. So we are yours, good Lord, we are yours, whom you have made with such wisdom and bought so dearly. Then if you commend them to me, Lord, you do not, therefore, desert me or them. You commend them to me. I commend myself and them to you. Yours is the flock, Lord, and yours is the shepherd. Be a shepherd of both your flock and shepherd. You have made me an ignorant mother, a blind leader, an erring ruler. Teach the mother you have established. Guide the leader you have appointed. Govern the ruler you have approved. I beg you, teach me what I am to teach. Lead me in the way that I am to lead. Rule me that I may rule others, or rather, teach them and me through them. Lead them and me with them. Rule them and me among them. Amen. So we've talked about these cards a few times. Let me, um, and I'm sorry, but you're going to hear me probably two or three more times. <laughs> Um, but what they are is a companion type thing for your counsel. So I'm speaking to you as counselors right now, and then I'll speak to you as mothers again in a moment. Um, we develop them because of the various ways that we learn and remember. So the teaching that I just gave you, I would have used with a counselee. I would have adapted it so it didn't sound like a me speaking to them kind of talk, but I would have used this talk to try and encourage another mom who has a wayward child. Um, this teaching will also be, as you can see, online. So you could also send a counselee to our website to listen to it, ask them to take notes while they're going through it, use our outlines, that kind of thing. And we're, we're always offering that. That's always been the case at IBCD. Those uh, podcasts are available for you to listen. A lot of our outlines are on there as well. And I would like to go through a lot of those and create cards for every one of them. So I'm hoping to do that. But for this talk in particular, I pulled out the key words that I want my counselee to remember, the key concepts from this talk. And you can see which one's the largest in the center. Now what this does for me and what I learned in my process of how to learn is this gives me a picture in my head. And I can remember this picture, even if I only remember that one in the center. It's good enough. But I will send these home with my counselee, and I'll ask them to meditate on them. A lot of my counselees are young moms, don't have time to do homework, so we do our homework together and then go over it together. But they can put this in their dash. They can put this on their mirror, and they can be reminded of what we had talked about together. They can also memorize some of the scripture using this. I memorize in clauses and phrases or keywords. Um, I can't believe I'm the only one that's like that. I imagine there's a lot of people who do that. I cannot memorize off an outline. It doesn't happen. I have to see it artistically. 
Um, so they, they might be like that as well. And since so many women are counseled, I'm guessing there's a lot of women who also visually appreciate that all but one. She left already though. Um, anyway, so you can use it that way. The other way I use these, and you'll hear me talk about this tonight, is that I ask my counselees to make two columns and look at the scripture or these words on the card or both together and in one column write them down. But in the next column, think about how does this apply to my situation? How does I am praying for them apply to my circumstances right now, to this situation that I have with a prodigal? And you can either have them write one thing or make them try and think of 10 things. But just having them ponder, first of all, scripture, but also trying to apply it, okay? Does that make sense? All right. Any questions that would help me help you understand it better? No, okay. Well, I thought at the end of the talk that maybe it would be helpful if you guys would tell me the names of the prodigals in your life and I could be praying and then I realized, no, <laughs> this would be more helpful. This is who's praying for your prodigal. I want to take a moment, just silently, if you have a pen, write down the name of your prodigal. I know it'll be hard to see in the dark, but just write down the name of your prodigal on the back and remember these words for that person, okay? And then you guys, please feel free to go get lunch. I know you're hungry. I appreciate you taking the time. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.